can't be neutral on the moving train I told y'all before You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught How do you know what they was taught was correct? Y'all you know I mean? Dig into the real history of this country And the fact that it was built on blood Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. There you'll find some links. You can find you'll find a link to send me a message. You'll also find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and all my podcasts free and independent. If you live in the United States, you live in an empire. If you live outside of the United States, you live with an empire. Empires impose their will in various different ways sometimes overtly through war and all its associated human costs sometimes overtly through sanctions which harm and kill in other ways and also overtly and covertly um in in many ways including media and propaganda We're going to look at those things on this episode. First up is an attempt to put a number on some of the human lives lost in the so-called War on Terror. This is printed at bylinetimes.com and is written by Nafiz Ahmed. 20 years after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, compelling statistical data has emerged suggesting that the true death toll of the war on terror could be as high as 6 million people, and that this colossal figure itself is likely to be conservative. Earlier this month, Brown University's Costs of War project updated its rolling analysis of the number of people killed in direct violence due to the post-9-11, quote, war on terror. It found that just under a million people, between 897,000 and 929,000, were killed directly due to violence across five theaters of war involving significant U.S. and Western military involvement, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. These numbers have been widely reported as proving that around 1 million people have been killed in post-9-11 wars, yet they are extremely conservative figures. The real death toll is far, far higher, a fact that has not been properly reported in media reports. The deaths we tallied are likely a vast undercount of the true toll these wars have taken on human life, said the co-author of the Costs of War Project report Professor Nada Crawford, noting that the tally does not incorporate indirect deaths due to the consequences of war through the destruction of civilian infrastructure. The new figures, therefore, do not account for the many indirect deaths the war on terror has caused by way of disease, 
displacement, and loss of access to food or clean drinking water, she acknowledged. The most accurate way to calculate the scale of total deaths would be through epidemiological surveys to determine, quote, excess deaths by comparing pre-war and post-war mortality rates, which would encompass both direct and indirect deaths. However, in many of these countries, the infrastructure to monitor and collect the relevant data does not exist or is very hard to obtain, which is why such surveys are rare. In the absence of epidemiological analysis, it is still possible to develop a clear sense of the minimum likely scale of indirect deaths. Last September, when commenting on an earlier version of the project's findings, Costs of War Report co-author Professor Catherine Lutz pointed out that, quote, one has to multiply that direct death number by an estimated two to four times to get to the total number of people in the millions who are dead today who would not have been dead had the wars not been fought. And this is, this is the, the semi-secret kind of mind-boggling if you're a conscious human impact of the war the war's impact isn't isn't the trillions of dollars that the u.s and its allies spent to conduct it it is the millions and millions multiple millions of lives multiple millions of people are dead today who would not be dead if the U.S. and its allies had not conducted this, quote, war on terror. According to a landmark report by the Geneva Declaration on Armed Violence and Development, signed by 113 governments, in quote, the majority of conflicts since the early 1990s for which good data is available, the burden of indirect deaths was between three and 15 times the number of direct deaths. The report found that due to the impact of conflicts on public services and infrastructure, vastly greater numbers of people end up dying indirectly from the consequences of violence compared to the number that died directly from conflict. The range varies based on different factors, such as the levels of economic development in a country before war, the duration of fighting, the intensity of combat, the population's access to basic care and services, and the success of humanitarian relief efforts. The more intense the fighting and the more degraded the level of infrastructure, the higher the number of indirect deaths. The report concluded that, quote, a reasonable average estimate would be a ratio of four indirect deaths to one direct death in contemporary conflicts. However, it should be noted that this ratio is a minimum average that is likely to be extremely conservative in relation to the impact of Western-backed military interventions. For instance, six months after the bombing campaign in Afghanistan in 2001, data assessed by The Guardian revealed that although between 1,300 and 1,800 Afghans were killed directly, as many as 20,000 and possibly as high as 49,600 people had died due to the indirect consequences of the military intervention. In this case, 
the total number of indirect deaths was at least 15 times higher than direct deaths. If that higher empirically substantiated ratio was applied to the cost of war direct deaths figures in Afghanistan since 9-11, 176,000 people, it would imply 2,640,000 indirect deaths in that country to date, which would suggest that in just one country, a total of about 2.8 million Afghans have been killed due to the war on terror. This scale of violence has been corroborated by one other assessment of avoidable mortality in Afghanistan by retired Latrobe University biochemist Dr. Gideon Polia. His book, Body Count, Global Avoidable Mortality Since 1950, put total excess deaths of Afghans since 2001 at 3 million. While the Geneva Declaration approach cannot be used to produce precise figures, it can provide an accurate insight into the likely order of magnitude of total deaths in a way that simple direct death figures cannot. Applying its methodology to the cost of war project figures suggests that the overall number of indirect deaths from 20 years of the war on terror is between at least 3,588,000 and 3,716,000 people. This indicates that Brown University's 1 million figure is extremely conservative and that the total death toll is actually at least between 4,485,000 and 4,645,000 people. Once again, these cannot be taken as specific figures, but rather as an indication of the real magnitude of deaths, likely to be a minimum of 4.5 million people. Even this estimate is highly likely to be too low, given that the real ratio could be larger than 4 to 1, and in Afghanistan, for instance, was 15 to 1 at the height of the 2001 bombing campaign. Syria and Libya In 2019, I was commissioned by the Hub Foundation in California to examine the available data on deaths in Muslim-majority regions as a consequence of post-9-11 conflicts. The data from that exercise suggest that some of Brown University's figures for direct deaths are almost certainly too low. In particular, the project's estimate of the Syrian death toll is only 266,000 based on death tallies for after U.S. intervention in 2014. The authors acknowledge that many of these deaths would also have been caused by other parties. But, as I have documented for the International State Crime Initiative at Queen Mary University of London, U.S. and Western intervention in Syria began much earlier, as early as 2011, and took a range of covert and overt forms which played a crucial role in igniting and prolonging the conflict in various ways. While this does not lessen the responsibility of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad and his backers, Russia and Iran, in the violence, it does show that it is arbitrary to begin the death count in 2014 as if that is the pivotal date of U.S. involvement. This means that the actual direct death toll in Syria is far higher, around some 511,000 people, according to groups both opposed to and sympathetic to Assad, a figure which itself is probably conservative. In addition to the five theaters of war examined by Brown University, 
I had also incorporated data from the NATO intervention in Libya, including some 27,361 direct deaths. When the Geneva Declaration 4 to 1 average ratio is applied to these figures, the numbers are sobering. My original analysis in 2019 had incorporated Brown University's older data compiled that year, but the new report shows the figures are now higher. Below, I have incorporated Brown University's new figures to update my original analysis, along with the more accurate figures for Syria, and taking into account Libya to develop a range of plausible estimates of indirect deaths that should be recognized as probably conservative. Rather than applying the Geneva Declaration approach wholesale to the overall direct deaths figures, I have applied it case by case for each theater of war to produce a likely order of magnitude figure for indirect deaths. These final figures are then totaled to generate an overall cumulative death toll for each conflict zone, which in turn is used to calculate an overall estimate for the total number of deaths across all these theaters of war. As these are not precise figures, they have been rounded to the nearest thousand. This analysis shows that the total number of direct deaths during the war on terror in major war zones with significant involvement of Western governments amounts to around 1.2 million people. In addition to this figure, applying the Geneva Declaration methodology suggests that between 4.2 and 4.6 million people is the range encompassing the minimum number of people who are likely to have died as an indirect consequence of these post-9-11 wars. When the number of direct and indirect deaths in each major war zone is then totaled, it reveals that at least 5.8 to 6 million people are likely to have died overall due to the war on terror, a staggering number which is still probably very conservative. And on top of these numbers being just very conser likely very conservative totals, they are exclusive. They only include the major, major theaters of war and related action. They do not include other places where there were smaller actions. These estimates cannot be assumed to hold with precision, but they demonstrate the real scale of the consequences of the violence inflicted. While it is obviously not possible to attribute these deaths specifically to a particular party in the way that has been attempted with direct death tallies, these deaths are causally related to the chain of events that began with post-9-11 military policies implemented by the U.S., U.K., and other Western states. Without that chain of events, these wars and their devastating outcomes simply would not have happened. To the extent that the Costs of War Project's conservative direct death tallies are widely reported and cited as a reliable indicator of the scale of violence in the War on Terror, there is a risk that the true, far higher but largely invisible scale of death remains suppressed from public consciousness. On 9-11, nearly 3,000 innocent Americans were killed on U.S. soil. In the ensuing 20 years, just over 1 million people were directly killed in the series of wars that followed as a result. But that is only a part of the story, because the 1 million figure is a vast undercount of the true total death toll. In reality, it is likely that at least 6 million people have been killed in the course of the War on Terror, and that the vast majority of those killed 
are of Muslim origin. Yet, it is in the very nature of how these wars have been conducted that we can never be truly certain of the full scale of the deaths they have caused both directly and indirectly. The true scale of the destruction caused by the war on terror remains largely taboo, unreported, and unexplored by most media commentators and academic experts, let alone policymakers. And this is not an accident. This is part of the plan, part of the program, part of the propaganda to convince those living in empire and those living with empire that empire is benign or even that empire is benevolent and that it reluctantly has to do these evil things for the greater good. To even contemplate that such a huge number of people might have been killed as a result of decisions by U.S., British, and European leaders in the name of fighting terrorism strays too far outside the framework of what is culturally acceptable and intellectually palatable. Such a scale of death is not what, quote, we do. We are not, quote, terrorists. However, if the true consequences of these wars are examined, we might begin to recognize how the nature of conflict and violence has transformed through the 20th and 21st centuries. It has become imperceptible, embedded in far-flung institutions of power, upheld through short-sighted military operations, with structures and ethics designed in such a way that they systematically maximize the deaths of invisible, quote, others in the name of protecting, quote, our more important bodies and interests. The very dynamics of mass violence have become globalized and normalized precisely because our political and cultural institutions are incapable of acknowledging that such state-sanctioned terrorism even exists. 20 years after 9-11, the shocking fact is that due to our lack of interest as a civilization, no one really knows for sure how many people have died as a result of the war on terror. Now the Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan has added insult to injury, providing proof that the projection of extreme force only ever empowers more extremists. As the Taliban stocks up its new government with designated terrorists, and as Al-Qaeda accelerates its capacity to regroup, there is no longer any excuse. We need to fundamentally rethink our entire approach to what we call security and reevaluate how we have allowed ourselves to reach this point of devastation and delusion. If we don't, the return of the Taliban is merely the beginning of an untimely end. So that story takes a look at one impact, the direct and indirect impacts in a few areas of our empire's terrorism in the world, some of the major instances of our terrorism since 9-11, and the human toll, perhaps 6 million people, conservatively, that are now dead due to our exercise of power but we exercise power in lots of other ways and one of the other ways that the u.s empire exercises power 
is through sanctions. Next up is a report published at Popular Resistance compiled by the Sanctions Kill Coalition uh, produced specifically by Rick Sterling, John Philpot, and David Paul with support of additional members. It is titled The Impact and Consequences of U.S. Sanctions. Introduction In recent decades, the U.S. has increasingly used sanctions as an instrument of foreign policy. Some 39 nations and territories are under direct or indirect sanctions. Most of these sanctions are not authorized by the United Nations Security Council, and many of them are enacted by the U.S. alone. They are called unilateral coercive measures at the United Nations. These U.S. decrees and legislation are extraterritorial when they assume the right to impose regulations, restrictions, and penalties on non-U.S. countries, companies, and individuals. There are many types of sanctions, economic or financial restrictions, trade prohibitions, and blocking or seizing assets of individuals, organizations, and countries. Greatly increasing the reach of sanctions, secondary sanctions target non-U.S. entities which are interacting with the primary target. President Biden's administration is currently reviewing U.S. sanctions policy. On January 21, 2021, the first national security memo of the Biden administration called for a review whether U.S. sanctions are hindering response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Subsequently, administration leaders raised a second concern, saying, quote, the goal of sanctions should not be to punish ordinary citizens for the actions of their leaders. Then Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen expressed a third concern that sanctions are undermining, quote, the U.S. leadership's role in the global financial system. The Biden administration review of sanctions is being conducted by an interagency team, including state and treasury departments. As of mid-September 2021, they have not released the results of their review. Because this issue is vitally important, a coalition of nonprofit and human rights organizations called Sanctions Kill has prepared the following report. The information and findings are the result of on-the-ground investigation in Syria plus questionnaires with citizens of some of the most severely sanctioned countries, such as Cuba, Iran, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe. The title of this report is We Don't Deserve This. This is what a Syrian woman said when asked about the destructive impact of U.S. sanctions on her country. The goal of this report is to inform North Americans about the real-life consequences of U.S.-imposed sanctions. This report begins with our findings and goes on to conclusions and recommendations. After that, there are quotes from some of the people interviewed and short synopses of the impact of sanctions in Cuba, Iran, Nicaragua, North Korea, Syria, and Venezuela. Findings Finding 1. Sanctions primarily hurt civilians. Humanitarian, quote, exceptions have not worked. As reported by the Center for Economic and Policy Research, quote, targeted countries experience economic contractions and, in many cases, are unable to import sufficient essential goods, including essential medicines, medical equipment, the infrastructure necessary for clean water, health care, and food. 
the effects are devastating for everyday citizens. Similar claims about the impact of sanctions are made by many others. For at least 25 years, study after study has shown that coercive economic sanctions are hurting the most vulnerable and driving middle-class citizens into poverty. An article at the Association of Certified Sanctions Specialists acknowledges, quote, In Venezuela, the sanctions regime has created a food deficit, which in turn reduces the public's caloric intake and increases disease as well as mortality rates. Sanctions appear to be more of a collective punishment than an attempt to modify behaviors. A former foreign, U.S. Foreign Service officer writes, quote, Sanctions harm the poor and middle class the most. The report, titled Economic Sanctions as Collective Punishment, the Case of Venezuela, says, quote, We find that the sanctions have inflicted and increasingly inflict very serious harm to human life and health, including an estimated more than 40,000 deaths from 2017 to 2018. Congressman Jim McGovern recently wrote to President Biden saying, I believe sanctions like those the previous administration imposed on Venezuela are both misguided and immoral. The same is true of the dire suffering caused by U.S. sanctions in the Middle East. U.S. sanctions on the Syrian central bank have collapsed the currency. Products are four times as expensive as they were just one year before the imposition of these sanctions. Millions of Syrian civilians have been driven into poverty. With an Orwellian touch, the sanctions are named the Caesar Civilian Protection Act. As noted in a Carter Center report, quote, The exceptions process does not function as intended. Finding number two, U.S. sanctions have hindered the response to COVID-19. As a result, many civilians have died and the pandemic has spread further. In March 2020, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, quote, We are at war with a virus. He appealed for waiving sanctions that can undermine countries' capacity to respond to the pandemic. The Trump administration ignored these appeals and added new sanctions. In March 2020, a Venezuelan request for an emergency $5 billion loan to fight the virus was rejected by the International Monetary Fund. The report noted, quote, The U.S. is the biggest shareholder and has a veto over major decisions. In April 2020, the Center for Economic and Political Research reported that Iran was having difficulty obtaining, quote, medical supplies, sanitation equipment, and other goods we now know are necessary to slow the virus's spread. It commented, while the United States is fighting COVID-19 here at home, U.S. sanctions against other governments are aiding the virus's spread abroad. They've already likely contributed to many unnecessary deaths in Iran. In October 2020, the UN Human Rights Office issued a press release saying unilateral sanctions make it harder to fight COVID-19 and must be dropped. The report by Special Rapporteur Elena Dewan notes, Targeted countries face shortages of medications and medical equipment, including oxygen supplies and ventilators, protective kits, spare parts, software, fuel, electricity, drinking water, and water for sanitation. Because of extraterritorial sanctions, Cuba has had enormous difficulty obtaining syringes, even as they developed their own COVID-19 vaccine. 
A few months ago in early June 2021, Venezuela's payment for 11 million COVAX vaccinations was blocked by UBS Bank because of U.S. sanctions. The funds ultimately went through, but only after a delay and international protest. In February 2021, 27 congressional representatives and senators sent a letter to President Biden encouraging the review of sanctions policy. They said existing policy has led to catastrophic humanitarian consequences. In March 2021, 55 human rights and religious organizations sent a letter to President Biden with recommendations including the suspension of sanctions on aid necessary for the treatment of COVID-19 and all sanctions on civilian sectors. On June 17, 2021, the U.S. Treasury Department announced new guidelines for Syria, Venezuela, and Iran. General licenses will permit, quote, certain activities related to COVID-19, but such exceptions to the extreme sanctions have not made a significant difference. Finding number three, U.S. sanctions and extraterritorial claims have led to the imprisonment of business persons and diplomats and the violation of international treaties. Individuals are put at risk of extradition to the United States and eventually to huge fines or long prison terms based on transactions outside the USA with a sanctioned country or individual. This extraterritorial claim has been declared contrary to international law by United Nations General Assembly Resolution 75-181. In defiance, the U.S. continues to assert extraterritorial jurisdiction and seeks the extradition of individual business persons and even diplomats. It appears it is bullying or bribing countries such as Canada and Cape Verde to comply. The following are prominent examples. The case of Alex Saab, a Venezuelan diplomat. Alex Saab, a Venezuelan diplomat, was arrested in Cape Verde on June 12, 2020, on a United States warrant for extraterritorial, quote, money laundering. He was en route to Iran to acquire basic food, medicine, and medical equipment against COVID-19, much needed by the people of Venezuela. He was detained during a stopover in Cape Verde, and has been held since that time, first in prison and then under house arrest. Saab points out that his, quote, illegal detention is entirely politically motivated. In jail, Saab was kept in the dark for 23 hours a day, lying on a concrete floor, partially losing his eyesight and losing 55 pounds. While the Cape Verde authorities approved his extradition to the United States, the Court of Justice of the Economic Community of West African States ECOWAS declared his detention illegal and awarded him $200,000 in damages. On June 8, 2021, the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations adopted interim measures ordering the suspension of the extradition and access to appropriate health care for the Mr. Saab, who suffers from cancer. The African Bar Association and the American Association of Jurists likewise resolved that the diplomatic envoy should not be incarcerated. As this report goes to publication, Saab lost his final appeal in a Cape Verde court. He's expected to be extradited any day. The case of Alex Saab is especially significant because his detention is a clear violation of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. The United States and the island archipelago nation of Cape Verde are signatories to this treaty, which says, quote, 
the person of a diplomatic agent shall be inviolable. He shall not be liable to any form of arrest or detention. The case of Ms. Meng Wanzhou, Chief Financial Officer of Huawei. Meng Wanzhou faces charges of bank fraud for allegedly misleading HSBC, a British bank, about Huawei business dealings in Iran, causing the bank to violate U.S. sanctions against Iran in 2013. On August 22, 2018, a U.S. District Court in New York issued an arrest warrant for Meng, and Canada's RCMP then arrested her in Vancouver on December 1, 2018. She has now been under house arrest for over two and a half years. The Chinese government has called the detention lawless, reasonless, and ruthless. There is no material link with the United States unless milliseconds of a bank transaction in the U.S. SWIFT system links it to the USA. In September 2018, Donald Trump stated that her arrest could be reversed depending on trade negotiations with China. The court proceedings in Canada have been followed and criticized the world over. It is not known how many less prominent people have been charged or being sought for violating U.S. sanctions and claims to extraterritorial jurisdiction. Finding number four. Sanctions are spurring countries to sell U.S. securities and establish alternatives to the U.S.-dominated financial system. Sanctioned countries have a material interest in departing a system based on U.S. political economic dominance. For example, in 2012, Russia held over $150 billion in U.S. US Treasury securities. In June 2021, Russia announced that it was eliminating U.S. dollars from its reserve fund, the holdings have been reduced to $4 billion and are going to zero. China is also reducing its holdings in U.S. securities and bonds. In September 2020, it was reported that, quote, China may ditch U.S. treasuries as decoupling risk looms. For decades, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, SWIFT, has been the primary transaction network governing transfers between banks in every country of the world. Although SWIFT is based in Belgium, the U.S. has been able to monitor and disrupt transactions when it chooses to. This way, the U.S. has been able to impose extraterritorial sanctions on third-party countries. This has spurred the desire for an alternative. The European Union, China, and Russia have all sponsored and launched alternatives to the SWIFT system. The EU has created the Instrument of Trade Exchanges, INSTEX, which allows them to get around U.S. unilateral sanctions against Iran. China has promoted the cross-border interbank payment system, SIPS. Russia has created yet another system dubbed SPFS. In April this year, Russia announced that whenever they choose, they are, quote, ready for disconnection from SWIFT. The petrodollar allows the U.S. to dominate international finances and guarantees sales of the U.S. dollar. That also is being challenged as more countries see the advantage of not using U.S. dollars for oil purchases. As indicated in the article, China, Russia, and EU edge away from petrodollar. The petroyuan for oil futures trading could become a tool to counter U.S. dollar hegemony in the oil market. In a January 2021 overview on economic sanctions, the Congressional Research Service wrote, quote, 
Many foreign governments targeted by U.S. financial sanctions and their economic partners are increasingly exploring and creating ways to reduce their reliance on the U.S. dollar. If countries pivot from the U.S. dollar to alternative currencies, the United States could face higher borrowing costs, among other economic effects. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's concern about sanctions fueling the decline of U.S. economic dominance is well-founded. Finding number five. Many U.S. industries and farmers want to trade with sanctioned countries and call for a change in policy. In November 2000, the Cato Institute published an article titled Going Alone on Economic Sanctions Hurts U.S. More Than Foes. It says, quote, Using trade as a weapon of foreign policy has harmed America's economic interests in the world without significantly advancing national security. The proliferation of trade sanctions in the last decade has been accompanied by their declining effectiveness. From Cuba to Iran to Burma, sanctions have failed to achieve the goal of changing the behavior or the nature of target regimes. Sanctions have, however, deprived American companies of international business opportunities, punished domestic consumers, and hurt the poor and most vulnerable in the target countries. USA Engage is a coalition of U.S. businesses initiated by the National Foreign Trade Council. The director of the organization described their history and goals as follows. USA Engage was established in 1997 to address the recurring imposition of unilateral economic sanctions as a substitute for the rigors of diplomacy. A broad-based coalition of manufacturing, agricultural, and service producers, USA Engage continues to advocate that the people-to-people -people intelligence and understanding conferred by commercial engagement trumps the demonstrable failure, witness Cuba and Iraq, of interdictions on commercial activity. As a legislative stratagem, sanctions are in fact unfunded mandates whose costs are borne by the individual enterprises and communities and whose stated goals and benefits fail to materialize. The historical record demonstrates that unilateral sanctions hurt the innocent and further empower the governing elites in the targeted country. USA Engage continues to advocate for the primacy of normal commercial relations among countries, for diplomacy and engagement as our primary tools of foreign policy, and for the ability of the executive branch to conduct foreign policy in the spirit of the late Senator Arthur Vandenberg's observation that politics stops at the water's edge and for adherence to the rule of do no harm when it comes to attempting economic blackmail to realize foreign policy goals. Millions of U.S. farmers and workers depend on exports of their crops and commodities. They want to be able to export and trade with China, Cuba, and other countries where it is prohibited or severely restricted. Finding number six. Many U.S. sanctions are based on false claims of an emergency and threat to national security. U.S. sanctions are sometimes authorized by congressional legislation. At other times, they are imposed by President using U.S. Code 1701 under international emergency economic powers. The President can authorize sanctions by declaring there is an, quote, unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security, foreign policy, or economy of the United States. Thus, in March 2015, President Obama declared a, quote, 
national emergency with respect to the unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States posed by the situation in Venezuela. The claim that Venezuela poses a security threat to the United States is not credible. On the contrary, the reverse is true. It is the U.S. that has threatened and engaged in aggression against Venezuela, including support for a coup attempt in 2002. The Congressional Research Service has produced a report titled, quote, The International Emergency Economic Powers Act, Origins, Evolution, and Use. At the end of the report, there is an 18-page listing of, quote, national emergencies leading to sanctions on countries which are no threat to the U.S. These sanctions can go on for decades, severely damaging the economies and their chances for development. The CRS report questions whether the oversight provisions are robust enough. Finding number seven. A large majority of world nations believe U.S. sanctions violate international law and the U.N. Charter. In December 2020, the United Nations General Assembly passed Resolution 75-181 on human rights and unilateral coercive measures. The representatives of 131 nations approved the motion, saying, quote, Unilateral coercive measures and legislation are contrary to international law, international humanitarian law, the Charter of the United Nations, and the norms and principles governing peaceful relations among states. Similar resolutions approved by 70% of world nations have been passed for many years. In September 2014, the United Nations Human Rights Council created the position of Special Rapporteur on the negative impact of unilateral coercive measures on the enjoyment of human rights. The first Special Rapporteur was Idris Jazari. In 2018, Ambassador Jazari said the unilateral sanctions are depriving innocent people of food and medicines and should end immediately. He said, quote, Unilateral sanctions that restrict nearly any financial transaction or which seek to prevent third countries from engaging in legal trade with a country are illegal and immoral forms of coercion. The current Special Rapporteur appointed in March 2020 is Elena Dewan. She has made increasingly vocal and urgent requests to end unilateral coercive measures, UCMs. In August 2020, she reported, quote, Sanctions are bringing suffering and death in countries like Cuba, Iran, Sudan, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen. Sanctions that were imposed in the name of delivering human rights are in fact killing people and depriving them of fundamental rights, including the rights to health, to food, and to life itself. Philippe Niusi, president of Mozambique and chair of the Southern African Development Council, has said, quote, Sanctions without UN approval are a violation of our United Nations Charter and run against the spirit of multilateralism. As SADC, we reaffirm the urgency of the removal of all sanctions imposed on the Republic of Zimbabwe. The sanctions must be removed now for the good of the region and the world. The international consensus regarding the U.S. embargo against Cuba is overwhelming. For the 29th year in a row, the U.N. General Assembly passed a resolution calling for the U.S. to end the embargo against Cuba. The vote was 184 to 2, with only Israel and the U.S. opposed.
Finding number eight. There has been virtually no reporting on international criticism and recommendations regarding U.S. sanctions. The global criticism of U.S. sanctions is ignored by Western media, although more than two-thirds of the United Nations General Assembly has passed resolutions condemning unilateral coercive measures. This has not been reported in the West. Incredibly, the New York Times archives do not show a single reference to unilateral coercive measures. Well, it's not so incredible when you understand how the quote-unquote free press propaganda works. The UN Human Rights Council has appointed a diverse array of experts to study and report on the impact of sanctions and what should be done. In 2012, the U.S. lawyer Alfred DeZayas was appointed to be independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order. Over the next seven years, he produced major reports documenting the impact of economic sanctions in numerous countries. Ugandan attorney Livingstone Sewayana, Sewanyana is the current holder of this position. The Algerian diplomat Idris Jazari produced major reports documenting the realities faced in countries under economic assault. Belarus lawyer and author Elena Duin was appointed to be the second special rapporteur on the negative impact of unilateral coercive measures. She has researched and produced reports on the impact of sanctions on Venezuela, the fight against COVID-19, and a human rights guidance note. The newspapers of record in the United States, the New York Times, along with virtually all Western media, have simply ignored these United Nations experts, their investigations, and reports. Conclusions Conclusion 1. Unilateral coercive sanctions violate basic human rights. These sanctions are contrary to the UN Charter, which provides for the inalienable rights to economic and social development and health. Unilateral economic sanctions violate the right of a country to self-determination, as established in Articles 1 of both the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The right to self-determination is a fundamental collective human right. Economic and social rights are basic human rights on par with civil and political rights. Since these sanctions deprive targeted countries of revenues to support essential infrastructure and public services for the whole population, they're a form of collective punishment, comparable to a wartime siege as stated in the Geneva and Hague Conventions, both signed by the U.S., these coercive measures are the main obstacle to countries being able to confront the COVID-19 pandemic by denying revenues and blocking transactions for the purchase of vital medical supplies. To exacerbate the suffering of an entire civilian population during a severe health crisis to force a change of government is morally corrupt in a clear disregard for basic human rights. Conclusion 2 Sanctions undermine peaceful relations and the sovereign equality of nations. The UN Charter, a binding international treaty, requires non-interference in the internal affairs of nations and affirms the, sovereignty, the sovereign equality of all nations. The only potentially legitimate form of economic trade and financial sanctions are based on a resolution of the United Nations Security Council, this rule applies to the U.S.
indiscriminate unilateral coercive measures amount to the use of force in international relations, a form of war. They reflect a foreign policy adopted and implemented with hegemonic aims. In January 2019, the UN Special Rapporteur Idris Jazari said, quote, said concerning Venezuela, quote, the use of sanctions by outside powers to overthrow an elected government is in violation of all norms of international law. I urge all countries to avoid applying sanctions unless approved by the United Nations Security Council as required by the UN Charter. In 9 May 2019, Mr. Jazari said, quote, Regime change through economic measures likely to lead to the denial of basic human rights and indeed possibly to starvation has never been an accepted practice of international relations. Real concerns and serious political differences between governments must never be resolved by precipitating economic and humanitarian disasters, making ordinary people pawns and hostages thereof. These measures violate international law and the Charter, particularly in the time of COVID-19 pandemic, preventing countries from responding to and recovering from the pandemic. International humanitarian law, the Charter of the United Nations, and the norms and principles governing peaceful relations among states inspired Resolution 75-181. Conclusion 3 Sanctions create potential criminal and civil liability for U.S. authorities. The United States and its leaders face potential criminal responsibility or civil liability at the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice, or before a possible specialized ad hoc criminal or civil court created in the future. U.S. officials cannot claim they did not know the consequences of sanctions. The promoter of the original sanctions on Cuba was clear about U.S. goals. On April 6, 1960, Deputy Assistant Secretary Lester Mallory wrote a secret memo saying, quote, Most Cubans support Castro. The only possible way to make the government lose domestic support is by provoking disappointment and discouragement through economic dissatisfaction and hardships. Every possible means should be immediately used to weaken the economic life denying Cuba funds and its supplies to reduce nominal and real salaries with the objective of provoking hunger, desperation, and the overthrow of the government. U.S. officials' mindset has not changed over the decades. In October 2018, William Brownfield, ex-ambassador of the U.S. in Venezuela, stated the regime change goal and knowledge that the U.S. sanctions would cause civilian suffering. Quote, if we are going to sanction PDVSA, Venezuela state-owned oil and gas company, this will have an impact on the entire people, on the ordinary citizen. At this moment, perhaps the best solution would be to accelerate the collapse, even if it produces a period of suffering of months or perhaps years. Such unilateral coercive measures constitute crimes against humanity. Long prison terms for United States authorities are possible if the criminality is substantiated by proof of intention of predictable large-scale suffering and the occurrence of such suffering. The damages caused by illegal United States sanctions can justify reparations of the order of billions of dollars. 
if you hurt someone, you must pay the damages, could become the rule. These consequences can be mitigated by the abolition of the sanctions as recommended in this report. Conclusion 4. Media has failed to inform the public about the consequences and global condemnation of U.S. sanctions. Most U.S. citizens have little or no understanding of the severe harm being done to millions of residents of countries such as Venezuela, Cuba, Syria, Iran, Zimbabwe, etc. If the media brought an accurate accounting into the nation's living rooms, we believe they would strongly oppose the policy of imposing crushing sanctions and economic war. It seems a continuation of this foreign policy depends on preventing people from knowing the reality. And this is such an important part of the conclusions. Even though it's the smallest one and the briefest one, it really gets to the heart of understanding how the U.S. empire is able to easily and successfully harm millions and millions of people around the world and kill millions of people around the world with virtually no repercussions. It is because of the complicity of the media. The media does not challenge the government. The media marginally challenges the government. The media challenges the government here or there. They expose things from time to time. They are not uh, fundamentally an entity that holds power accountable. They are an entity that Im- that supports power, that allows power to do what it does and get away with what it gets away with. Even when sensational stories break, even when Edward Snowden leaks the details of mass surveillance of U.S. citizens, and it becomes a story because newspapers like The Guardian publish it and make it known and other other papers pick it up, including the mass media in the United States that pick it up. It doesn't go anywhere. The it, it, it doesn't stay. It has no staying power because the media doesn't really care about holding the government accountable for the evil things that the government does. Recommendations to the U.S. government. One, implement the 16-point plan proposed by the U.N. Special Rapporteur Elena Dewin with respect to the pandemic, including under no circumstances should trade in essential humanitarian goods and commodities such as medicine, antivirals, medical equipment, and its component parts and relevant software and food be subject to any form of direct or indirect unilateral economic measure or sanction. Accordingly, any impediment to such trade, including trade barriers such as tariffs, quotas, and other non-tariff measures, impediments to appropriate contracts, financial transactions, transfers of currency or credit documents, and transportation that hamper the ability of states to effectively fight the COVID-19 pandemic and deprive them of vital medical care and access to clean water and food should be lifted or at least suspended until the threat is eliminated. 
States shall not take measures preventing other states from getting external aid of any character, including international loans, to combat the pandemic, both from other states and international organizations. No national law or regulation of regional international organizations shall have extraterritorial application. Therefore, any sanctions, including administrative and criminal charges against individuals and companies involved in the delivery of medical goods and food to sanctioned states in accordance with international humanitarian and human rights norms should be lifted or at least suspended to prevent fear and overcompliance from the side of states, banks, donors, humanitarian operators, and other relevant actors. Humanitarian exemption regimes shall not be limited to the medicine or medical equipment and software necessary to treat COVID-19 or for imminent life-saving activity only. They shall guarantee the availability of medicine and medical equipment necessary to treat other diseases, food, and other essential goods, and shall include reconstruction projects to enable targeted states to repair national economies, to restore civilian health care and educational institutions, and to guarantee the protection of the civilian population. Number two, undertake and apply a review of U.S. foreign policy with respect to U.N. Charter principles regarding multilateralism and the sovereign equality of nations. Abrogate all unilateral coercive measures adopted outside the UN Security Council. Number three, require congressional oversight regarding presidential claims that there is an extraordinary threat to national security. The current situation whereby the president can impose a warlike sanctions on other countries based on dubious claims without any oversight should be reformed. Voices from the Sanctioned Quote, Due to the lack of fuel, we are not able to generate the electrical energy that is needed. This leads to blackouts. This affects the civilian population because it can ruin the food that is refrigerated, which people have spent much work to acquire. The blackouts and starting stopping can damage all types of electrical equipment, and their replacement is very difficult given the lack of spare parts. Rosaida, medical doctor, from Cuba. Quote, One hard shock that we are confronting is the lack of antibiotics, especially the components needed to manufacture them. There have also been many difficult moments in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic, including the lack of even simple swabs used to do the PCR test. These could be obtained easily if we were not blockaded. Even the glass materials essential for these exams are very difficult to obtain. Norma, psychologist from Cuba. Quote, The embargo that Biden is enforcing, what we hear in Cuba called the blockade, is a cruel policy designed to make our lives miserable. The U.S. government is like a cop with its knee on our throat. We can't breathe. Sure, there is a lot to criticize about Cuba. It is not perfect, and no one says it is not even the Cuban government. But those who criticize Cuba now remind me of the people who talked about George Floyd's supposed character flaws to justify a policeman slowly killing him while other police officers stood by and watched with guns drawn. A blockade is an act of war. So is it now time to analysis to analyze Cuba's problems versus its virtues? To stand by with your hands folded and watch? 
or to do something to actually get the boot off the neck of us Cuban people. Pablo, North American musician, composer, and resident of Havana, Cuba, since 1966. Quote, the financial reserves robbed from our nation are not available for the maintenance and replacement of parts for our water system. This results sometimes in failures of the distribution of water for months, resulting in people being forced to walk long distances carrying water. This harms the health, hygiene, and economy. People who are not able to carry water, like the elderly and disabled, must pay high prices for it. Others make long lines at outdoor tanks, which are not well treated causing diarrheal illnesses and the spread of mosquitoes. Anna from Venezuela Quote, Water supply depends on electricity to run the water pumps. When the power comes on, we rush home and turn on the faucet to fill the bathtub with water. Terry from Venezuela Quote, one significant problem with sanctions is that it makes commercial bodies and investors nervous because they don't want to break the law and are also unsure if sanctions will be tightened in the future. This deters investment and makes it difficult to send money for aid projects, etc. A wider point is that sanctions do not directly affect those they are aimed at. Daniel Ortega and his family are well off, have no need to travel to the U.S., and are unaffected by general sanctions and probably not greatly even by those aimed at family members directly. The same applies to big business, which has ways to circumvent sanctions. It is inevitably poor people who are most affected since sanctions affect government programs aimed at assisting them. John, resident of Masaya, Nicaragua. Quote, Everything is expensive now. Before, Syria was the best country in the world. We are suffering sanctions because we are against America and the Gulf. Elderly man selling products on street in Damascus. Quote, we hope the sanctions end. The U.S. is trying to subjugate us. Teacher in Duma, Syria. We respect the American people the Saudi people, even the Israeli people. We have problems with the governments of those countries. We wish to live peacefully. This is the view of the majority of Syrians. Syrian Red Crescent staff member Suleiman in Homs, Syria. We want the American people to stand with us. We don't deserve this. Rana in Damascus. Gasoline is often not available because the U.S.-EU sanctions prohibit Syria from importing crude oil to refine into gasoline. A taxi ride which used to cost 100 lira now costs 1,000. People wait days in line at the gas stations to fill up their cars, and the amount is rationed due to low supply. Syria had produced and refined their own oil from domestic wells. However, the largest oil field at Al-Omar, near Deir Ezzor, is occupied by the U.S.-backed SDF, who steal the oil and have a contract with Delta Crescent Energy, a U.S. firm. Lily in Latakia, Syria Examples of the impact of sanctions on some individual countries Quote, 
Modern-day economic sanctions and blockades are comparable with medieval sieges of towns with the intention of forcing them to surrender. 21st century sanctions attempt to bring not just a town, but sovereign countries to their knees. A difference, perhaps, is that 21st century sanctions are accompanied by the manipulation of public opinion through, quote, fake news, aggressive public relations, and a pseudo-human rights rhetoric as to give the impression that a human rights end justifies the criminal means. Report of the United Nations Human Rights Council Independent Expert on the Promotion of a Democratic and Equitable International Order, Alfred Desaius. This section of the report focuses on some of the most severely sanctioned countries, Cuba, Iran, Nicaragua, Syria, Venezuela, and Zimbabwe. Beyond the focus of this report are more than 30 other countries and territories under U.S. unilateral sanctions, which include China, Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi, Belarus, Guinea-Bissau, Haiti, Mali, Gaza and the Palestinian territories, Russia, Rwanda, Somalia, Libya, Afghanistan, Sudan, South Sudan, Yemen, and Tunisia, among others. A recent addition to the sanctioned countries is the government of Kabul, Afghanistan. In mid-August 2021, the Taliban took effective control of the country. Already, the United States has announced sanctions on the new government and blocking its access to Afghanistan's $9.4 billion in international reserves. This is leading to a rapid decrease in the nation's currency value, raising prices for many goods and indicating the Afghanistan people's suffering will continue. In May 2021, the U.S. imposed visa restrictions and economic sanctions on government and military officials from Ethiopia and several others from Eritrea in the context of an internal conflict in this important strategic region on the Horn of Africa by the Red Sea. In late August 2021, the U.S. Treasury sanctioned the Eritrean Army's chief of staff for his involvement in the conflict in neighboring Ethiopia. The consequences of these new sanctions could be very important. The United States should be abandoning unilateral coercive measures and not increasing them. Cuba Cuba has suffered a severe economic, commercial, and financial blockade for the past 60 years. President Trump imposed 240 additional coercive measures, and even more are being imposed by President Biden. This has resulted in a severe economic crisis, widespread suffering and hardship in Cubans' daily lives. The methods of sanctions include blocking trade and financial transactions. U.S. and foreign businesses are reluctant to trade with or ship goods to Cuba under the threat of penalties. There are exemptions from, for some humanitarian aid, but the licensing process is lengthy, costly, and many suppliers refuse to participate due to the threat of sanctions. Even when a contract is made for a purchase, most financial institutions refuse to process the transactions, forcing Cuba to purchase essential goods and spare parts from distant and costlier sources. The U.S. also requires that ships from other countries that bring goods to Cuba must wait six months before entering U.S. ports and can face heavy fines. Restricting U.S. Travel to Cuba This has worsened the effect that COVID-19 has had by reducing Cuba's main source of revenue from tourism. 
This has caused significant job loss in public and private sectors. Undermining COVID response. Cuba has developed its own COVID-19 vaccines, but it is difficult to import components to produce them and syringes to administer them. A U.S. shipping company refused to transport a large shipment of masks, test kits, and ventilators from China. Swiss medical companies stopped shipping medical supplies after being bought out by a U.S. company. Cuba's health missions have helped control COVID-19 in other countries. Due to the U.S. pressure and a campaign to discredit these missions, some countries have canceled contracts with Cuba for this assistance. Blocking the import of medical supplies. Cuba's healthcare system has been severely affected due to the difficulty in purchasing supplies needed to treat the most vulnerable, including women, children, elderly, and disabled. Medical suppliers in the U.S., who are often the only providers of specialized medications for many cancers and medical devices, have mostly refused to respond to Cuban requests. Purchases of equipment to treat heart failure, dialysis, and for prosthetics for children have been blocked, as well as assistive technologies for the blind and deaf. Blocking fuel imports. This causes severe shortages of gas needed for all forms of transport to move food and basic goods within the country, including the ability to maintain production of electricity, vital for hospitals, food preservation, and pumps for water infrastructure. Reduction in remittances. Families in the U.S. have been forced to greatly reduce the amount of money they send to relatives in Cuba, vital for the purchase of basic goods. Undermining agricultural production. Sanctions result in the lack of access to fertilizers for soil enrichment and fuel needed for farm equipment. Blocking advanced technology. Internet services are restricted, limiting the availability of social media platforms, domestic and international communications, and educational exchanges. Iran. Iran has been sanctioned by the United States of America since 1979. In 2015, the United States signed the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with China, France, Russia, United Kingdom, United States, plus Germany, abolishing most U.S. sanctions on Iran in exchange for Iran limiting its nuclear program. On July 20, 2015, the JCPOA was adopted unanimously by the Security Council, thereby binding all the parties. In May 2018, President Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw from the JCPOA and impose some new sanctions with full withdrawal effective November 2018. President Trump decided that anyone doing business with Iran could not do business with the U.S., hence the scourge of third-party sanctions. Some 1,600 sanctions have been imposed by the United States and huge sums of the order of $100 billion of Iranian money and assets are frozen outside Iran. President Joe Biden USA campaigned to the commitment on the commitment to return to the JCPOA. Our investigations confirm the terrible and fully documented effects of these sanctions, particularly with respect to the civilian population. Serious financial hardships have arisen, especially outside the cities with less access to food. The price of oil has increased and health care has suffered on a large scale. The Iranian currency was devalued by 85%. The pandemic has been very severe in Iran, according to Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, director of the WHO. 
Iran lacked supplies of personal protective equipment from the beginning of the pandemic and remains one of the worst hit. According to Dr. Ryan, director of the Emergency Health Program, Iran is still struggling to obtain medical equipment such as ventilators and intensive care materials, as well as medicines. Officially, medicines are not under sanctions, but companies are not willing to deal with Iran because of the threat of sanctions. A U.S. researcher from Virginia Tech, Javad Salehi Isfahani, estimated sanctions had caused an additional 30,000 COVID-19 deaths as of October 2020. Legally, the United States sanctions on Iran are a crime against humanity since they amount to an attack causing terrible suffering for the Iranian population with the full knowledge of the United States government. Nicaragua The U.S. used sanctions against Nicaragua in the 1980s along with mining the country's ports and arming and training the Contras. Nicaragua successfully took action in the International Court of Justice when Daniel Ortega won re-election in 2006 and again in 2011. His opponents began to lobby the United States to reimpose sanctions. This led in 2016 to the Nicaraguan Investment Conditionality Act, which was eventually passed in December 2018. It is known as the NICA Act. When violent protests failed to overthrow the Nicaraguan government in 2018, the U.S. Congress passed new legislation targeting Nicaraguan government officials and requiring U.S. officials to oppose loans to Nicaragua from international financial institutions. Opinion polls show that 85% of Nicaraguans oppose U.S. sanctions. Even the Organization of American States described the NICA Act as counterproductive. The NICA Act's targets are government ministers, but its victims are, the, are Nicaragua's poorest communities. The World Bank, having praised Nicaragua's use of international funds to relieve poverty and having financed over 100 successful projects since the Sandinistas first took power in 1979, suddenly halted funding in March 2018. It did not resume work for nearly three years until late 2020, when the bank responded to the pandemic in two devastating hurricanes. The International American Development Bank and the International Monetary Fund similarly stopped funding large projects. Sanctions on individual Nicaraguan government leaders are based on flimsy evidence. For example, former health minister Sonia Castro was falsely accused of instructing hospitals not to treat opposition casualties during the violence in 2018. Much respected for her work in transforming the country's health services since 2007, Castro had to leave her post when sanctioned, as she could no longer handle international financial transactions. Sanctions have hit specific projects benefiting poor communities and have also begun to impact mainstream services, such as health care, where replacing defective equipment or obtaining supplies during the pandemic has proven to be problematic. Nicaragua is one of the few Latin American countries to receive no U.S. vaccine donations so far. Supplies have been promised, but none have arrived. Gaps have been partly filled using Nicaragua's strong ties to other countries and with the Central American Integration Bank, which, unlike other international financial institutions, stepped up its assistance. The Renacer Act, short for Reinforcing Nicaragua Adherence to Conditions for Electoral Reform, was recently approved by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. 
If approved by the Senate and House, it will intensify sanctions on Nicaragua and expand the targets of personal sanctions to ordinary Sandinista party members. In the opinion poll, 83.7% of Nicaraguans believe U.S. sanctions are manifestation of U.S. intervention in Nicaragua's internal affairs. North Korea Trade with the Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, DPRK, has been restricted since 1950, the official beginning of the Korean War. North Koreans have lived with restrictions, embargoes, and scarcities imposed and enforced by a variety of sanctions from the United States and the United Nations. These sanctions had targeted the military and elite, but then in 2016, sanctions became sectoral, targeting entire industries. Since the beginning of the DPRK nuclear tests in 2003, the Bush and Obama administrations respectively lifted some sanctions to facilitate negotiations around DPRK denuclearization and then reinstated them when the negotiations failed to produce the results desired. On March 2, 2016, the Security Council issued Resolution 2270, Draconian Measures Affecting Weapons Transactions, Proliferation of Nuclear Activities, Maritime and Air Transport, Export Control of Weapons of Mass Destruction, foreign trade, financial transactions, including the freezing of assets, banning the export of gold, vanadium, titanium, rare earth metals, as well as coal and iron. North Korea reacted immediately, rejecting the resolution and intensified nuclear tests and issued warnings of preemptive actions. There has been a sizable decline in the DPRK's external trade. The Trump administration elaborated on DPRK sanctions by returning the DPRK to the state sponsors of terrorism list, targeting the DPRK's access to international shipping, instituting a travel ban, and adding new measures targeting several DPRK industries. The administrative hurdles placed on international aid organizations and outright bans on items containing metal instituted by Obama's U.S. and U.N. sanctions have had a devastating effect on the DPRK agricultural, medical, and sanitation systems. In 2018, 3,968 people in the DPRK, who were mostly children under the age of five, died because of shortages and delays to UN aid programs caused by sanctions. On the Korean Peninsula, the U.S. polices the inter-Korean affairs of reunification through sanctions. After the Korean leaders signed the Panmunjom Declaration, on April 27, 2018, the U.S.-led U.N. command, which oversees the DMZ, blocked development of the Inter-Korean Railway. Syria Syria has been under U.S. sanctions for many years, but efforts to damage the Syrian economy reached a new level in June 2020 with the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act. The Caesar sanctions prohibit any U.S. or foreign citizen from assisting in maintaining oil or gas production or any kind of construction or engineering. The sanctions declare that the Central Bank of Syria is primarily for money laundering and thus prohibits all interactions with the bank. The goal is to make it impossible or extremely difficult for Syria to conduct normal trade. Consequently, the Syrian pound has lost much of its value and the cost of goods has skyrocketed. UN Special Rapporteur Elena Duwen has said regarding Syria, quote, The sanctions violate the human rights of the Syrian people, 
whose country has been destroyed by almost 10 years of ongoing conflict. What particularly alarms me is the way the Caesar Act runs roughshod over human rights, including the Syrian people's rights to housing, health, and an adequate standard of living and development. The U.S. government must not put obstacles in the way of rebuilding of hospitals because lack of medical care threatens the entire population's very right to life. Interviews with people in Syria reveal the consequences of the draconian U.S. sanctions. A Red Crescent staff member says that before the war, Syria produced most of their own pharmaceuticals and medicines. Now, because of sanctions, they are prevented from rebuilding the factories. In those factories which were not damaged, they cannot import the raw materials to make the medicines. Thus, medicines must be imported and are five times as expensive. A British journalist who is married to a Syrian woman says that anesthetics are almost out of stock. He had to endure leg surgery without anesthesia. Antibiotics are also in short supply, leading to infections. He knows a child who has had hydrocephalus, water on the brain, who died for the lack of the correct medical device. Before the war and escalation of sanctions, Syria had one of the finest medical systems in the region. A pharmacist explains that medicines cost vastly more now because they need to be imported and bought on the black market. Hotel staff explain that sanctions have devastated the tourist industry because Visa and other credit cards do not work in Syria. The situation is compounded because the oil fields on the eastern Syria in eastern Syria are controlled by U.S. forces occupying the area and supporting a secessionist group. With Caesar sanctions targeting the energy sector and prohibiting reconstruction, electricity is in short supply. Some areas only have a few hours of electricity per day. In other areas, electricity is four hours on, four hours off. In the West, we complain if the electricity is cut off for a few hours. U.S. sanctions prohibit any support or investment which enables Syrian government reconstruction of hospitals, schools, or residences. Even Zoom teleconference software is unavailable. One analyst explains, quote, The U.S. has multiple goals. One goal is to prevent Syria from recovering. Another goal is to prolong the conflict and damage those countries, like Russia, which have assisted Syria. Venezuela For over 20 years, the U.S. has attempted to destabilize the Venezuelan government with over 100 economic, commercial, and financial coercive measures. This has resulted in an economic crisis and widespread suffering in people's daily life. The following are some of the key sanctions, methods, and consequences. Blockade of oil exports. This has reduced Venezuela's main source of revenue needed to import most essential goods. Revenues have been reduced to just 1% of the levels prior to sanctions. The U.S. has blocked access to loans that could have enabled Venezuela to recover from the economic crisis brought on by the drop in oil prices in 2014. The U.S. Government Accounting Office admitted that, quote, the sanctions on state oil company in 2019 contributed to the steepest decline in the Venezuelan economy, which led to hyperinflation, low salaries, and public sector job losses. Blocking of diesel imports and the chemical needed to produce its own. This has been devastating for the whole economy. 
It is crucial for electric generation, water pumping, and treatment plants, heavy equipment to transport basic goods, agricultural machinery, and crop irrigation. Unable to import diluents, refineries cannot produce enough gas, forcing many to wait in line for days to get gas for vehicles. U.S. Seizure of Venezuelan Assets These total $8 billion from Venezuela's Citgo oil facilities in the U.S. and the freezing of additional billions in foreign banks. This has prevented the purchase of food, medicines, and spare parts for the repair and maintenance of electricity, gas, and water infrastructures, resulting in frequent power outages and water shutoffs. The threat of large penalties on any foreign companies, banks, shipping firms, and food suppliers who try to trade with Venezuela has forced Venezuela to buy from distant third parties with greatly increased costs and delays. Banks from the U.S., U.K., and Portugal have refused to release Venezuelan assets, including over $1 billion of Venezuelan gold by the Bank of England. Sanctions Impacting the Health Sector Effects on the health sector in response to COVID-19 are severe and affect the most vulnerable. Exemptions exist for some humanitarian aid, but are ineffective and insufficient due to lengthy and costly procedures. Vaccines, including basic child immunizations from WHO-backed COVAX program, have been delayed for over one year because the payments by Venezuela have been blocked. Medications to treat severely ill COVID-19 patients, as well as COVID-19 protective equipment, are very expensive due to having to purchase them from distant sources. Spare parts for medical equipment, especially ventilators, come from the U.S. companies and trade with them is prohibited. A report by Center for Economic and Policy Research found that even before COVID-19, sanctions cost over 40,000 deaths in less than two years. In part, due to an increase in infant and maternal mortality, diabetics without insulin, lack of dialysis equipment, and shortages of drugs for HIV, heart disease, and cancer. Children with leukemia are waiting bone marrow transplants abroad, and 14 have died while a bank in Portugal refused to release the funds for it. Reduction of food imports. This has affected 6 million Venezuelans who depend on the government-subsidized food program, Obstacles to food imports have resulted in a steady growth of malnourishment, with many reducing to one to two meals a day. Over 2.5 million Venezuelans have slipped into food insecurity. Zimbabwe Zimbabwe has been sanctioned severely by the United Kingdom and the United States since 2002. Australia, Canada, and New Zealand have also maintained targeted sanctions against Zimbabwe. The sanctions policy responded to Zimbabwe land reform distributing the land mostly taken by white British colonists from the African population. The land reform was a major issue in the independence campaign of Zimbabwe, which triumphed in 1979. In 2002-2003, the United States and the European Union introduced several unilateral coercive measures, including blocking Zimbabwe's access to international loans inflicting direct damage on the population. At least 140 Zimbabwean entities and individuals are on the U.S. targeted sanctions list, which were prolonged by both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Zimbabwe policies allegedly posed an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. foreign policy. 
civilians are the major victims of these sanctions. Regarding healthcare, Zimbabwe was denied access to international financial relief and vaccines to fight the COVID-19 pandemic because of sanctions. The Chinese government has provided vaccines to Zimbabwe. In addition, Zimbabwe and a few other Southern African countries are moving forward to produce their own indigenous African vaccine for widespread use. Zimbabwe has apparently vaccinated about 1.2% of the country's population, but limitations on access to resources have had a negative impact on vaccination. Full circulation of scientific knowledge, including the lifting of patent authorization in the United States, as well as a free distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, is desirable. Major hydroelectric dam construction and repair have been delayed to the inability to the acquire the international funding and balance of payment restrictions. Water purification projects as well as construction projects have been delayed by the same financial hardships. There is limited access to water decontamination chemicals and parts and materials. Agricultural fertilizers and pest control chemicals have been limited, preventing relief from drought conditions. Road construction and repair, upgrading and purchasing of public transportation vehicles have been delayed due to financial limitations. The World Bank and International Monetary Fund have been able to control the former colonial countries, Zimbabwe being no exception. However, following Zimbabwe's institution of land reform through the reacquisition of stolen colonial land, a conscious attempt to crash Zimbabwe's economy through currency manipulation was seriously undertaken by the West. Only through consistent and often brilliant tactics of the governmental financial management and the discipline and understanding of the people has Zimbabwe been able to weather the harshest effects of these Western policies. These difficulties must be mitigated. Zimbabwe's development has certainly been curtailed by Western sanctions. Africa and the South African Development Community, SADC, have stood by Zimbabwe and stated the principles about development and self-determination. October 25 is now the SADC Anti-Sanctions Day. The SADC includes all African countries south from the Democratic Republic of the Congo to South Africa. In 2020, the USA and the European community rejected outright the October 25 Anti-Sanctions Campaign. And the balance of this report has some images and graphics related to the sanctions in these particular or against these particular countries, as well as a number of resources and documents that have been mentioned throughout the report. So this, this report got into it a little bit, but you know, how, how do these things happen? How do they just are enabled to continue? How does empire remain empire? Empire remains empire through effective propaganda. And sometimes that is through state-owned media. And other times it is through state-manipulated media. And in addition to a very compliant, quote-unquote, free media. And that's what we have in the United States and in many Western countries. In, in most Western countries, there is very little significant, meaning large-scale, oppositional media. Um, it's just not 
prevalent in many Western countries um, as life in in many Western countries is easier is less of a struggle on average and that doesn't mean there's no people struggling because there are many many people struggling in the empire countries in the Western government countries in the United States um, the inequality is tremendous but the middle class is larger and the working class is more significant and more people are getting by easier that doesn't mean that there aren't way too many people that struggle and suffer in in the western countries and try to get by and how does that even how is that even allowed to continue it is because the governments are effective in their direct management of the propaganda in the the commercial media I don't like to call it mainstream media. Um, and the commercial media is very effective in its upholding and supporting of the government and what the government does. And here's one small example of that. Uh, FAIR is, stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. It's a, an organization that's been around for a long time. It's not part of the mainstream corporate media commercial media it is one of those oppositional media voices it's one that doesn't get heard very loudly because it's oppositional there certainly is oppositional media in western countries in the empire but it is marginalized it doesn't get financial support it doesn't get uh picked up by the commercial media and amplified by the commercial media um when they do important stories and fairness and accuracy and reporting has done a lot of that analysis of the commercial media and how the commercial media supports empire and you can find them at fair.org this is a piece written by joe emmersberger uh published on september 27 2021 hbo's anti-maduro propaganda is cruder than Venezuelan oil. HBO Max began streaming a documentary on September 15, A la Cal, maybe that's A la Cai, to the street. It portrays U.S.-backed opposition leaders in Venezuela as pro-democracy heroes battling a brutal dictatorship, a total reversal of the truth. A Daily Beast article promoting the film is headlined Capturing Venezuela's Descent into Socialist Hell, which succinctly conveys the film's slant and suggests why it found a big corporate platform like HBO Max, a subsidiary of AT&T's Warner Media. From the trailer alone, it is obvious that Alacaye depicts Venezuelan opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez as a noble democrat, that is outrageous. Lopez, a former oil industry executive, was one of the perpetrators of U.S.-backed coup in 2002 that briefly ousted the democratically elected president at the time, Hugo Chavez. A dictatorship under business executive Pedro Carmona killed 60 protesters during the two days it was in power. Another 19 people, half of them Chavistas, were killed in violent confrontations just before the coup. 
Lopez, along with another prominent politician, Henrique Caprié, led the kidnapping of a Chavez government minister while Carmona was in power. Lopez appeared on local TV proudly saying that he had briefed President Carmona about the kidnapping. Several months later, Lopez backed a second major coup attempt, the opposition-led sabotage of the oil industry that supplied almost all Venezuela's export revenue. The coup attempts against Chavez drove the poverty rate to over 60% by early 2003. Lopez supported violent protests again in 2013 after the candidate he backed, Caprié, refused to accept his loss to President Nicolas Maduro in the first presidential election after Hugo Chavez's death. Later that year, Lopez criticized Caprié for calling off the protests, saying they should have continued until Maduro was ousted. When Caprié called off the protests, they had already left nine people dead, all supporters of Maduro. Lopez initiated protests in early 2014 that led to 43 deaths. Half of them strongly indicate the responsibility of his supporters. It was only after leading that fourth U.S.-backed effort to oust the elected Venezuelan government that Lopez finally went to jail. I watched the whole documentary, curious to see how exactly the film would whitewash all the coup attempts Lopez was involved with, and how it would deny the violence his supporters and allies perpetrated over the past 20 years. I also wondered how the film would excuse murderous U.S. economic sanctions on Venezuela, acts of war that have been linked to the deaths of tens of thousands of Venezuelans by the end of 2018 alone. By 2021, U.S. sanctions, which have been relentlessly intensified since 2019, reduced Venezuela's government revenue by 99%, according to U.N. Special Investigator Elena Duin. I expected to see bad arguments justifying all these crimes. Instead, the documentary edited them out of existence completely. None of these things were mentioned even once. Nothing about the U.S.-backed coup attempts prior to 2014. Nothing about devastating economic warfare the U.S. has inflicted on Venezuela since 2017. Venezuelan economist Ricardo Hausman and Tamara Tarasiuk, Deputy America's Director of Human Rights Watch, deserve special attention for the mendacity of the statements they made. In the film, Hausman said that Chavez came to power because 1998 the year Chavez was first elected, quote, was an economically difficult year. In fact, Venezuela had a few disastrous decades before Chavez was first elected. Hausman should know, because in 1992 he became a minister in the government of Carlos Andres Perez, which had perpetrated the Caracazo massacre in 1989, hundreds of possibly thousands of poor people were gunned down during five days of protests against an IMF-imposed austerity program. In a recent article, Justin Poder and I reviewed Venezuela's economic history, showing that it had always been plagued with shocking poverty and inequality, despite Venezuela being a major oil exporter since the 1930s. Of course, quote, Venezuela's descent into capitalist hell is not a headline you are likely to find in corporate media coverage from the pre-Chavez area. After deceptively explaining why Chavez was first elected, Hausman moved on to bigger lies. Quote, Hugo Chavez in the first five years changed many things, he said, but the economic situation did not improve. 
That's a very crude lie of omission. Hausman neglected to say that within those first five years, Chavez was hit with two major U.S.-backed coup attempts that devastated the economy. By surviving those coup attempts, Chavez was, in 2003, finally able to get control of the state oil company, PDVSA, the country's main source of hard currency. Hausman then deceived viewers again by saying, quote, In 2004, the price of oil shot up. Suddenly, Hugo Chavez realizes that he has a lot of money. The price of oil had actually been rising since 1998, the year before Chavez first took office. Fortunately for most Venezuelans, oil prices kept rising for several years after Chavez finally wrested control of PDVSA from saboteurs. The economy was therefore able to quickly recover from the coup attempts and begin a period of dramatic poverty reduction. About 40 minutes into the documentary, Tamara Tarasiuk of Human Rights Watch says that the violent protests of 2017, which the film shows Leopoldo Lopez encouraging from his jail cell, have, quote, no precedent in recent Venezuelan history. The word recent does a great deal of heavy lifting in this absurd statement. Was the April 2002 coup attempt, which killed 79 people, overwhelmingly supporters of Hugo Chavez, and briefly overthrew the government, not recent, deadly, or politically significant enough to offer a precedent for the protests in 2017, which left 126 people dead? Also, it's not clear if most of the victims in 2017 were opposition protesters. Some of the protesters perpetuated gruesome atrocities, like burning alive Orlando Figuera, 21-year-old Afro-Venezuelan government supporter. What about the Caracazo massacre of 1989, which was perpetrated by a pro-U.S. government? Does it count as a recent Venezuelan history? In five days, the Caracazo death toll surpassed possibly by an order of magnitude the combined death toll on all sides during U.S.-backed protests against Venezuelan Chavista governments in 2002, 2013, 2014, and 2017. Incidentally, the Caracazo massacre also had no impact on friendly U.S.-Venezuelan relations or on the flattering U.S. press coverage of the Venezuelan government at the time. About an hour and 28 minutes into the film, Tarasiuk says that any decent government in Venezuela's dire economic situation would, quote, ask for help, but that Maduro has, quote, closed the door to international aid which is available. This was a commonly told lie around February 2019, when Trump's government, fresh from recognizing Juan Guaido as Venezuela's interim president, demanded that Venezuelan's military defy Maduro and allow about 20 million of supposed aid to enter from Colombia. Even at the time, this quantity of, quote, aid was a rounding error compared to the impact of economic sanctions that Trump had imposed since August 2017. Tarasiuk never questions the decency of Trump deliberately choosing to strangle an economy that was already in crisis. That alone makes her comment obscene, but also, contrary to what she claims, Maduro had requested international aid that Venezuela was receiving prior to the U.S.-led aid stunt of 2019. The documentary is so committed to debunked propaganda from 2019 
that it also gives the impression that an aid truck on the Colombian border was set on fire by forces loyal to Maduro. Quote, three or four trucks entered into Venezuelan territory, but one of them was burned, Lopez says on camera. The gray zone, and a bit later, even the New York Times refuted that lie at the time, noting that video shows the truck was set on fire by an opposition protester. After 2019, Western media actually moved on from pushing the lie that Maduro rejects international aid, largely because Trump, and now Biden, became so blatantly sadistic with their economic warfare on Venezuela. About 70 minutes into the documentary, Tarasiuk strongly insinuates that votes were not secret during the May 2018 presidential election that Maduro won by a landslide, saying that voters, quote, had to go through the Punto Rojo to register their vote. The Puntos Rojos, red points, are kiosks the government has always set up near voting centers for exit polling. Even an anti-Maduro writer who attacked these kiosks as blackmail concedes that the government can't know how people voted. It's also profoundly hypocritical to allege that Maduro coerced voters while ignoring the obvious threat the U.S. has sent Venezuela voters since 2017, that crippling economic warfare against Venezuela will continue and intensify until Maduro is overthrown. In any case, Maduro's vote count in 2018 was in line with the level of support a Pew Research poll, hardly a pro-Maduro outfit, suggested he had several months later. It found that 33% of Venezuelans, quote, trust the national government to do what is right for Venezuela. That's also a level of support among eligible voters that routinely wins elections in Canada, the U.S., and U.K. Throughout the film, numerous clips from big media outlets reinforce the film's dishonesty. Fox News correspondent Brian Lanus said, quote, Venezuela is crumbling under the weight of Maduro's oppressive regime. A BBC journalist glares at Maduro with imperial contempt as he, quite validly, rejects the claim that his 2018 re-election was illegitimate. Western media have long developed a kind of shorthand, repeated endlessly, that demands total impunity for U.S.-backed politicians like Leopoldo Lopez in Venezuela. Any legal consequences for U.S.-backed sedition are portrayed as oppression. U.S. entertainment media have also contributed to the vilification campaign against Maduro's government. Last year, Ethan Hawke did a fawning interview with Lopez, an old friend whom Hawke met while attending a private high school in New York. It's very easy to see why HBO Max would feel comfortable streaming a documentary as ridiculous as a la Kai. And that's just an illustration of one of the many, many places and areas in which our government-influenced propaganda filters down into our commercial media when they're not directly being quoted and directly uh, influencing and supporting and, and creating the narrative. The uh, commercial media is following the the capitalist narrative anyway. They, the, the U.S. government doesn't always need to coerce the commercial media to do what's right because the commercial media is commercial. It relies on capital. It relies on big business. And big business 
controls the narrative in that way. Just in the way that big business controls the narrative in the U.S. Congress by funding those campaigns and by supporting enough of the politicians who get elected to get those politicians to pass laws in their favor or block laws that are not in their favor. Sanctions kill. Empire terrorism kills. And the commercial media is an arm to convince the public either to hide hide the reality from the public or to convince the public it's all for good reason. We're the good guys. I think it's not a secret. If you're listening to this, we're not the good guys. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the Beck episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. Now, a moment of zen. Thanks for listening. Maybe we need some confession on the part of our government leaders. An acknowledgement, you know, like in Alcoholics Anonymous where they get up, get up before, you know, and, and confess, yeah. And maybe, maybe, you know, Cheney and Bush and the others should get up, you know, uh, you know form a group called uh, Imperialists Anonymous. Uh, and, uh, and tell the truth, and that is what they're, what they're aiming for in the Middle East is not democracy and not liberty. And they don't really care about the overthrow of tyrants like Saddam Hussein. Our government has supported tyrants all over the world. No, what they really care about, it's hard to say this, isn't it? Oil. It seems so mean, so cheap. <laughs> Although the oil won't be cheap. But, but it seems... You know, really, it's just oil? Yes, it's oil. History comes in handy there. The history of American policy towards the Middle East has been based on the desire to control the oil resources of the Middle East. That's been true ever since the end of World War II. Ever since President Roosevelt got together with uh, Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia and they made a deal. The United States will replace the, the old oil powers, the Dutch and the British and the French in the Middle East. And in return, the United States will support the Ibn Saud uh, government. Uh, talk about democracy. The Ibn Saud government, the Saudi government, government of Saudi Arabia, all these years has been as far from democracy as you can find. But we did not invade Saudi Arabia to give democracy to Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia gives us oil and is our ally in our quest for oil in, in the Middle East. So yes, history is, is very useful, you know, in, in all of these ways. Once we accept what the reality is once we uh, look honestly at what we have done and what we're doing. And the question is, uh, you know, what do we do about it? And are we helpless to do anything about it? Uh, because that's, I think that's a great problem, that people, even when they oppose the government, feel helpless to do anything about it. And, and so we, we don't see we don't see today, although most Americans today are opposed to the war, and most Americans today are opposed to the Bush policies, 
we don't see a connection between that opposition and any kind of change in, in policy. Uh, we don't see the wishes of the people represented in what the government does. We are not seeing the kind of actions that took place during the Vietnam War where the passive opposition to the war became more than passive when it became civil disobedience. We're seeing the beginnings of that with soldiers who are refusing to go back to Iraq. We are. We're seeing the beginnings of that with the families of soldiers saying that no, we are opposed to this war. But the fact is we do not have democracy in foreign policy. That's, that's a very important thing to acknowledge because we're always talking about bringing democracy everywhere, everywhere else. We do not have democracy in this country when it comes to foreign policy. We learn in school we have three branches of government and we have checks and balances and the legislator will check the you know, executive and the Supreme Court will see if things are con constitutional or not. That doesn't work in foreign policy. The president decides on war and Congress goes along like a bunch of sheep. Really, that's what they did in the Mexican War, that's what they did in the Spanish-American War, that's what they did in World War I, that's what they did in the Vietnam War, uh, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. Did members of Congress know where the Gulf of Tonkin was when they voted for the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution? Did they know what happened in the Gulf of Tonkin? Turned out to be a mess of lies. But they immediately voted to give Lyndon Johnson the authority to launch what then became a very long war in Vietnam. There's no, no democracy in matters of foreign policy. And uh, no checks and balances. No hope that Congress will, will stop and say, hey, let's look into this. Let's see if this is true. And then, no. And no hope for the Supreme Court deciding that a war is unconstitutional. And we have not fought a constitutional war since the end of World War II. Constitution requires that Congress declare war. Congress has not declared war in any war that we have fought, of the many since World War II. Well, you learn in school, if something is unconstitutional, it's the job of the Supreme Court to say so and do something about it. No. After all, so who are the Supreme Court? Just because they wear black robes doesn't give them any special moral standing, they are political appointees, and they do the bidding of the people who appointed them. So if they don't have democracy uh, in the upper reaches of government, if we can't depend on checks and balances on representative government, that, well, obviously, I think, leads us to the thought that if we're going to have democracy, it depends on us, it depends on the people.